public versus private. Any sustainable future is going to involve some kind of partnership between the public and the private sectors. Neither side is a simple or monolithic entity and both sides have their places. But where should the line fall? What belongs to the state? What belongs to private enterprise? What should be set by markets? And what should be set by civil society? And how do we think of going beyond ESG as a label? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at Jeroho Hambro Capital Management. And the point of this podcast is to talk about investment, active, sustainable investment that has the potential for meaningful long-term returns, but also real-world impact. To help unravel the relationship between the public and the private sectors, I have with me today Dr. Anakit Shah, Global Head of Environmental, Social and Governance and Sustainability Research at Jefferies Group. Anakit, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much, Andrew. Great to be with you. Now, let's be honest, you know, Jefferies is very large, powerful, you know, Wall Street investment bank. Uh, so ESG and investment banking, isn't that a bit of an oxymoron? Surely you just care about profit, nothing else? Well, it's not an oxymoron these days because the two worlds of profit and planet are starting to come together. They're starting to come together slowly but surely. But it is clear for, from where we sit, Andrew, that every major corporate, every major investor, and every major regulator is now trying to figure out how do these two worlds of profit-making business and long-term care about the sustainability of the planet, how do we make them come together? And we're in that period right now where people are trying to figure it out. And that's where an investment bank like Jefferies can really be helpful because we don't live in the world of ideology. We don't live in the world of slogans. We live in the world of practice, of pragmatism. And so it's a very exciting time to be sitting in an investment bank trying to bring together investors with investment opportunities as the world tries to figure out these topics. One of the things that I always say to my guests before they come on the show is that the only rule is that you can't use the phrase win-win scenarios. Uh, so let's explore a little bit this sort of concept of the inevitable trade-offs that we have in the system. You know, the world is a complex, messy place. And what do you think, how do you think about those sort of uh, potential tensions between achieving financial objectives and environmental and social sustainability? You know, almost sort of, because I know you and I have talked about Friedman and the original you know, letter that he wrote and That's his right. frame, framing of the concept. And people forget that he did talk about externalities. He did talk about boundaries set by civil society. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Well, I think the whole idea of a win-win is really quite dangerous um, when it comes to discussions of sustainability. Because let's be honest, there is a cost to doing things differently. There is a cost to us as businesses, to as consumers, to start putting a price on the emissions of carbon dioxide. There is a cost to paying people more and paying a living wage. The argument that we make is that in the long run, the benefits outweigh the cost. The the largest benefit, of course, is that you have 
a healthier planet and healthier individuals. But the idea that in the short run that there is no cost to this, I think is a real is a real frankly, it's really slowed down the adoption of a lot of these concepts from going mainstream. What we like to do and what I like to remind people is just some simple math. <clears throat> if we were, for example, to put a hundred dollar per ton carbon price out there in the world, it would mean around five trillion dollars that we would have to spend in terms of uh, an increased global taxation for carbon because the world emits around 50 billion gigatons or 50 billion tons or 50 gigatons of CO2 and its equivalents a year. So if you multiply 50 billion by 100, that's $5 trillion that we are either saving or we are spending in consumption that we are now going to have to spend in terms of additional taxes. Now, I would make the argument that that is a worthwhile investment for the long-term benefit of humanity, but we can have that debate. But there is a cost to these kinds of things. And one of the things that I like to remind folks and one of the, I think, real problems with the ESG space and the sustainable investment space is that we have forgotten what the role of the state is versus what the role of the private capital markets and private businesses. And you're absolutely right, Andrew, that Milton Friedman is really misunderstood because he himself said, yes, business should focus on optimizing profits. But there was a second sentence to what he said, which is that within the rules of the game set by the state, and the state sets the rules of the game through the will of the people. And so we need to have a much deeper and more sophisticated discussion around how do we get the state, i.e., how do we get the public to really support some of these painful but needed investments and taxation and regulation that has to come from uh, the public, uh, not the private markets. And, with, and once the rules of the game is set, we in the financial industry will learn how to make money with a new set of rules. That, that fundamental misunderstanding, I think, Andrew, has held back a lot of the progress that we've needed over the last 10, 15 years, especially on climate. I can remember once having a very interesting discussion with somebody from the International Monetary Fund who uh, put me right on some thinking around the idealism on climate change. And he, he just reminded me, Andrew, you have to think about the incentives in the system. And since then, I've become rather obsessed about incentives. But it is that point that civil society needs to help set the incentives and then the allocation of the capital will follow rather than thinking finance alone will solve the problem because without the right incentives, the capital isn't going to you know, flow in the right direction. The slope is going to be you know, we're pushing water uphill. And I think that's often forgotten. But one thing I wanted to pick up on a little bit there is the, the is, a, is a potential problem between the sort of short term and the long term and how we think about that in our world of you know, public market in investing uh, and how we reconcile that some of these long-term costs to the environment, to society. We know that, you know, that coal costs a huge amount. You know, the World Health Organization you know, has got statistics coming out of their ears on that. Tobacco is the classic one. How do we make sure that we can actually account for 
things that matter beyond the financial aspect? Yeah, again, on, on this point, on the full costs of smoking or the full costs of coal, the fundamental point is that there are negative externalities of emitting uh, greenhouse gas emissions through the combustion of coal that we are not paying right now, right? That insight we've known for a long, long time that we are basically free riding on a cost that greenhouse gas emissions has put into society. And the whole idea of putting a price on carbon, for example, or putting a taxation on tobacco is to put that cost back into the system, right? The problem is, is that carbon prices, as one micro example, today in 2022, the weighted average price per ton of CO2 is $3. Okay, only 30% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are under any type of carbon pricing regime. And so, although we've known these things in theory, we have been unable to actually implement it at scale in a coordinated way globally, because it's a very difficult set of questions. Who should pay? How much should they pay? Should poor people pay less than rich people? How do you actually put that into the tax code in a way that, it, that can sustain changes in politics and changes in policy and changes in regimes and so on? And because that has been so difficult, we haven't, Andrew, been able to get it done. And so all of us in the capital markets are trying to do as best as we can with technology improvements, as best as we can in terms of new business models. But there's a limit to that unless the state gets involved more. And we've seen this. You know, I'd like to think of, um, you know, a significant electric vehicle company that has changed the world when it comes to EV transportation was actually supported by the Department of Energy. It was a Department of Energy loan that kept this company alive during its very early stages. And now this company has fundamentally changed how we think about the ability to do transportation uh, in, a, in an electric way. So in other words, you need the state in order for private markets to do what they need to do. Now, to your other point about the short term versus the long term, it's funny, I actually don't see that big of a difference between the short term or the long term with regards to these issues from an investment perspective. And Andrew, that's because to me, I remember studying, of course, you know, how we value stocks. And as we all know, as investors and as people who advise investors, most of the value of a company is its terminal value, right? So when we do a discounted cash flow analysis, 80, 90% of a value of a company is not in year three or four or five or six or seven, but it's in year 11 on or 15 on. And the most important variable there is the long-term growth rate. So if you change the growth rate of a company's terminal value from 5% to 4% or 4% to 3%, the company's value just changes dramatically. And so I actually think the market does a fairly decent job pricing this information. It's just we don't have the incentives in place so that that long-term growth rate starts changing based on the societal needs of sustainable development. Now, Andrew, how have you seen this evolve? You are such a seasoned investor and you run investments here at Geohamber. How have you seen the change in 
the day-to-day investment process to reflect some of these externalities and what could be perceived as trade-offs between short-term and long-term? That's an interesting question, and I have hung around for a very long time. As all my guests seem to remind me, <laughs> very concerned. You have about better it. hair than I do, Andrew. <laughs> so you know you're doing well there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, more seriously, the the way I think people are thinking about extern- externalities is changing to be something that just can be ignored to something that represents latent potential. So a latent risk that can be internalized into business models. We saw that in the run-up to, to over the last five years, up until uh, the summer of last year on the oil companies. Dividends were cut, mm-hmm. returns on capital were under pressure. We see it with the tobacco industry, the number of sticks being sold around the world is diminishing. We're beginning to see transitions in the way that people consume food, you know, meat consumption globally has actually been falling. Um, you know, dairy companies in America, you know, I think America's oldest dairy company went bankrupt, 163 years old, went bankrupt because younger generations are you know, consuming um, plant-based milk. And, and I think that's probably always the best way to think about it is that these, if society's preferences change, and society does change all the time, you know, you can to simple things like color of cars, but actually more profound things. If if people begin to change their preferences and governments set the right incentives in the system, then that can be rapidly internalized into business models, either as an exciting growth opportunity or suddenly a risk that gets manifested in stranded assets um, as, as an example. So. You know, I was actually in Singapore last week, and it's very interesting. You don't see many EVs on the street. Mm. You know, quite a crowded, densely populated place, you know, where pollution, you think, might encourage. It's a very green country in terms of the policies and lots of great things with the buildings and parks. But the tax on an EV in Singapore is higher than an ICE. Interesting. And it just shows that, you know, the incentives weren't, aren't yet. I think they will probably change. Whereas in Norway, 77% of the new vehicles sold are EVs, despite the state getting a large dividend and income from fossil fuels. And even in the UK, where we don't often think of ourselves as being the greenest country, I believe 15% of EV sales, uh, car sales are EVs now. So, yeah, really interesting to see how the right incentives will shape behavior. So that interplay between the public and the private sector is really important. But I'd like to sort of pivot back a little bit. And you, you, you sit on two sides of a, of a barrier. I'm an investor. We talked about markets. But you also, because you're an investment bank, you have the actual corporates as your clients. And I just wonder if you may be able to give a little bit of a perspective on how the, the mindset is changing you know, more broadly across the, uh, the, the corporate sector. Something is, is this sort of seen, sustainability seen as a sort of, as one of my guests said, something woke and just <laughs> a, an unnecessary cost burden? Or, yeah. or, or are they actually beginning to understand that this is a series of business and economic opportunities? Andrew, th- thanks for that. It is, it is truly one of the uh, treats and delights of my job is spending time with CEOs and chairs of boards because as operators, they have an instinctive understanding of these issues much more than the investment community. Uh, talking to CEOs in the energy industry, 
in the consumer industry, in the technology industry, in the financial industry, um, all day as I do, you realize that there are a few things that are really on top of their minds with regards to these topics. So number one is they are incredibly aware of the shift in how investors are thinking about these topics, but frustrated that there isn't yet one standard approach, to which I always remind them that, well, there isn't one standard approach to investing. So there's not going to be one standard approach to how the largest investors in the world think about sustainability. The second thing that you keep hearing from leaders of, in, in, of industry is exactly the point you make around preferences. And it's not just the preferences of products that they, the preferences of consumers who are buying products that they sell, although that is very important and a key driver, but it's also the preferences of employees. I am amazed to see how real of a stress that is, especially in a world with as tight labor markets, particularly in the United States as we have right now. You know, there's two job openings for every job seeker in the United States right now. Remarkable uh, moment in our labor markets. And CEOs say to me, well, look, Anikat, I can't attract the next generation of talent unless I'm committed to this. And it's oftentimes even more important to CEOs to do sustainability, to get the right employees to work there, as opposed to worrying about, will investment firm X buy my stock? I think they're pretty comfortable they can keep investment firm X or Y holding their shares. They're not so comfortable or aware that they can keep an employee or certainly the, the next generation of employees. That's the second um, major takeaway. And the third major takeaway, I think, from CEOs that I'm getting a lot is the regulatory pressures that are now very real. They're frustrating right now because it hasn't yet, there's no clarity around, for example, here in Europe, well, actually, we're not in Europe right now, but, uh, you know, geographically, <laughs> we are. geographically we are. Um, there's a lot of frustration around the EU taxonomy, the sustainable finance disclosure regulation, these kinds of top down um, efforts to define economic activities as sustainable or not in a mechanistic way, because the reality of the world is just a little more complicated than that. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of confusion around how what's happening in Europe is going to coincide with what's happening in the U.S. with the SEC taking a more active stand on climate disclosures. But then an election coming up in six months, which could change things quite dramatically. And so CEOs are looking for a little bit more clarity from policy and regulation. I am bullish on that on a 10-year view. I am bearish on that in a two to five year view. In other words, I think the next couple of years is still going to be quite confused. But over a decade, I think we're going to start having clarity around things like carbon pricing, things like climate disclosures and so on from from corporates. So corporates are are really trying to navigate these issues. I think for the investor world, the real question now is how do you determine which companies are going to win with regards to sustainability and which ones aren't? And that's a very tricky question because the questions are not black and white. Um, every company has a different strategy and you can make money with regards to sustainability in very different ways. I think about some of the spin-offs, for example, 
some major coal companies recently have spun off their coal businesses. And those spinoffs have gone up by a factor of 10x in the last two years. Who would have thought that coal would have seen such a dramatic positive return? It's just a little bit more complicated than saying green is good and, uh, you know, uh, uh, green meaning sustainability is good in quotes and brown, i.e. hydrocarbons is bad. It's just more complicated than that. And CEOs know that and they wish that investors and employees and customers appreciated that more. It's very interesting that I sometimes also get asked to talk to corporates. Um, and in, in some ways, it's the same as having to talk to our end clients who try to talk about this dreaded acronym ESG you know, to, their, to, their, to their clients. And I always remind them, tell them it's environmental, social, and governance so they understand what you're actually talking about. But when I get asked, get asked by corporates to comment on how they should think about sustainability or ESG. I, I always ask them a sort of a, a question is, are you looking to optimize your ESG score? Or actually, are you looking to think about how to integrate sustainability into your business model as part of a strategy decision to produce sustainable, resilient, long-term financial returns that balances stakeholder interest as part of the business model. If it's the former, it's a very short conversation <laughs> uh, because there's actually very little value added in an optimized ESG score, either for them and certainly not for us uh, as investors. Now, talking about labels, and, uh, and ESG is undoubtedly a label that some aspire to without thinking about what's under the hood or the financial <laughs> right. implications. Um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals often used as a colorful backdrop to, <laughs> to many an investment or even a corporate sustainability report. Yes. Now, I know you were there at the, the creation of the, yeah. the, the SDGs, as they're now called, or the goals. I just wonder what, what your sort of perspective on the you know, sustainable dev development goals. Gosh, I can't get my words out today. You know, we're now what, nearly halfway through the 15-year cycle. I believe we're running behind schedule on yep. applying the capital to support them, which is a bit odd given how many people t tell me that they're actually contributing to their solution. <laughs> um, so what, what's your perspective yeah. as somebody who was there at the beginning? Absolutely. I, and I love talking about the sustainable development goals and how we have misconstrued their purpose. But I want to go back to something you said, which is really neat. The listeners need to uh, hear again and I want to double underline, Andrew, and it's one of the reasons why you're such a well-respected person in our space, is that distinction you make between ESG rating optimization and sustainability strategy is just such an important distinction and something that we all have to think about very, very clearly. We think at Jefferies, I personally think as well, the ESG ratings uh, space has been a complete waste of time. It has tried to impose upon people a mechanistic way of viewing things as if you could boil down the complexity of topics like climate change and resilience to climate change or the energy transition, living wages or diversity, as if you could boil that down to a score and then you can invest according to that. And for five years, I wasted hundreds of hours talking to 
uh, clients about, you know, does one is one ESG ratings company better than the other? And why is there no correlation between the two? And which one should I pick? And it was just such a waste of time because instead we should have spent that time talking about how are we going to go from 50 billion tons of CO2 and their equivalents to zero in the next 50 years? What are the technologies that are going to get us there? What are the incentives that need to change? How am I going to make money from this and avoid losing money from, from, from this transition? That's, what, that's why many of us got into this space. And the ESG ratings um, effort tried to, get, tried to make people think that, oh, well, if you put a number on it, it's somehow more robust. I mean, I don't know where that, how that idea got into our minds, Andrew, but um, as you and I know, as people in the industry, you can't measure everything that is valuable. And I hope that we move away from these ESG ratings pretty quickly and we go back into the very fundamental questions like you exactly highlighted around corporate strategy, around resilience, and around responding to preferences and incentives. So let me just let me just end on that point on that question, which you I got thought, that off your chest. I got off that my up chest, and thank you for allowing me to uh, with such patience. Um, now let's talk about the sustainable development goals. It's been fascinating to me to see how the SDGs are being used and not used seven years later, compared to what their original intentions were. Let me just clarify a few things for. Um, our friends on the line about who did the SDGs and what they were meant for. Number one, the SDGs are a political and diplomatic effort. They were signed on to by governments. They were signed on to mostly by the foreign policy teams of governments. I was inside the room at the UN while they were being negotiated. They were being negotiated by diplomats. They were not being negotiated by scientists. They were not being negotiated by business people. They were not being negotiated by investors. They were being negotiated by governments. And that to me is an interesting starting point because although they have application and certainly implications for business and investors, its main purpose was to say to governments, hey, look, folks, these are a set of goals that we all will want to try to achieve over the next 15 years. And the 17 goals that were determined up until the last few months, there were debates, should there be 10 goals, should there be 15 goals, should there be 17 goals, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. So number one is that they were very much built by and for governments. The second point to me is that they were not meant for this whole project that we use them for now, which is alignment. You know, I love this. Oh, are we aligning ourselves to the SDGs? No, it's not about putting a, you know, that nice colorful chart in your annual report and seeing how much of your revenues are tied to these different boxes. That's not what they were meant for. The SDGs were meant for change. They were meant for changing the economic paradigm that under which governments and companies operate, but that the way governments were setting the rules of the game so that the economy would operate accordingly. The SDGs were meant to say we can't have a global economy that continues to grow without taking into account 
social inclusion and without taking into account environmental sustainability, which, by the way, was the prevailing economic paradigm for the last 200 years. It was you grow, 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 grow. And then after you get rich, you figure out climate stuff and environmental stuff. And after you become really unequal, you start dealing with inequality. And of course, in economics, we all learn the Kuznets curve and the environmental Kuznets curve. But the idea of the SDGs was to say we need a different way of thinking about how we run our economies, one that puts collaboration, cooperation, care for future generations, care for the planet. And dropping out of all those ideas would be changes in our tax code, changes in our foreign aid system, changes in how we care about social safety nets and so on. But instead, Andrew, of taking the, the essence of these goals and running with them to change policy, we've basically used them as an alignment tool. And seven years later, I see this incredible effort from businesses and investors to say, well, how much of what we are already doing is aligned to these goals? That is not what we should be thinking about. To end this point about SDGs, I'll say, Andrew, the way we should be thinking about it in our world, in the business world, in the financial world, is to say, okay, number one, as people who work in business and finance, how do we help governments set the rules of the game so that these SDGs can be achieved? I think that's a really important point that we need to say in the business world that we should be constructive with the state to set the rules of the game to achieve these goals. And that will mean discussions around tax policy, around transfer pricing, around international aid and support, around technology transfer and so on. The second point where I would like us to use the SDGs in the investment world is to say, okay, for, the, for these goals to be achieved, what are areas that need more capital for technological breakthroughs to happen? What are new types of business models that would allow for these goals to be achieved? Let's go and put capital there. So it should be something constructive and additive and incremental, not, hey, what are we already doing and let's just do business as usual and assign ourselves to these 17 boxes. So the SDGs are a really, underlying them is a very beautiful and powerful set of ideas. They have been essentialized and simplified in a way that um, I think have not been constructive. I, that said, I'm not too negative about them because it is remarkable for 193 governments to agree on anything. And they did agree on these SDGs. And so we should use them, but we should all just put our thinking caps on and put a little bit of our history caps on and saying, what was this actually meant to do? Let's try to do that and that let's not use the easy way out. Andrew, how have you seen investors um, use the SDGs over these last seven years? Have you found it to be useful in terms of the allocation of capital or is it more of a ticking the box exercise? Uh, to be honest, I think it's a combination of both. I think that we have seen a lot of people who want to use that alignment. And I always have a problem with that. How are you aligned with the SDGs? Because only you want a positive sign. Right. And of course, the SDGs represent a series of deficits in the global economic system, environmental and social deficits that need to be addressed. Um, and a good proportion of them in the developing world, not in the developed world. Um, so that's why I was, you know, I, I struggle with SDG scores even more than I, I struggle with <laughs> ESG scores, and I struggle with those a lot. 
However, I think if you're going to start to design products with, which are impactful in their mindset, then you can use the SDGs of, as framing a series of opportunities because those companies that have the products or services and innovating to address underserved environmental or social needs that can be identified, and there's a lot of academic work behind the SDGs, as you know. That's right. You know, that, that represents a, a potentially growing market if you can address that need. So, you know, we use it in our uh, impact solutions fund where we talk about uh, impact being the, you know, the investment case. That's right. And when I was at co-chair the UNFFI Positive Impact Initiative, it was about creating this concept of impact-enabled business models to specifically address the SDGs. So it is very much using it as a framework for thinking about companies' activities and their role in contributing solutions and, and that's how we use it. Now, it, 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 it also has a, uh, as a, a way of thinking about the negatives. You have to think about the impact risks, you know, because the, that's implicit in, in the work that the UN did with the Sustainable Development Goals. What happens if these things aren't addressed? And, and I think that's a really important element of it. It has to be a much more broad and deep and balanced debate about how it's you know, we contribute to it and support it by, you know, I have seen corporates, you know, which claim all 17 SDGs are tackled by them. And then I have oh to ask, goodness. well, why, why do we have the SDGs? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> if a mining company or a coal or right. a tobacco company, and I've seen both claim yeah. to address all 17, right. uh, are doing it already. And I think that's a very important point that you made. This is about incremental capital that that's needs right. to be applied, not things that we do already. Exactly. Because otherwise, if it's all about what we do already, the SDGs are not needed and Absolutely. that's one of the sort of missing elements so it is in your investment thinking about thinking about what needs to be addressed now that has to be done through a lens of a business model and an investment case but it, that's how we use them and we, we we unpick them for example when you look at the 169 targets you know not all of those 169 targets are applicable in public equities no. or private debt a lot of them are as you said earlier are aligned to the provision of services by governments. So I think one of the SDG three sub uh, targets is the provision of a national health service. That's right. You know, so <laughs> exactly that's a right. little bit beyond the private sector. And in fact, what we see in America sometimes with the, the private sector trying to do that, it's not always been positively aligned. So you know, that's quite. So you know, it's not my chance that's, to get on the soapbox. As no, well. it's a, but it's an important. It's a you know, there's one word that you use there that I want to double underline, and it's something that, that uh, one of my mentors, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, always says, who played you know a key role in the formation of the SDGs, which is that the SDGs are an investment framework for the world. It's about investment, and investment can happen from the public sector, and investment can happen from the private sector. And so going back to what you, with the conversation we had a few minutes ago, it is really about understanding what should the public sector be doing and therefore where public capital should be going and what should the private sector be doing and therefore where private capital should go. And I think even just focusing a little bit on that question in our thinking going forward will help clarify the roles of what we do in our day jobs here at Jeffries or at J.O. Hambro versus what we need Washington 
and Brussels and London, you know, what you need capitals around the world to be focused on. And of course, the two are linked because, the, as we've discussed, governments can set the rules of the game so that more private capital flows in and out of certain sectors. One of the important things that um, the work that we did at the Sustainable Development Solutions Network s several years ago that it highlighted is that the SDGs require around two to three trillion dollars of incremental global investment directed at some of these main areas of healthcare, education, energy, infrastructure, and so on. Maybe the number is a little bit more now because we've basically wasted a lot of time. So let's say it's four or five trillion dollars a year. To some people, that sounds, that sounds like an insanely large amount of money. But remember, we are a hundred trillion dollar a year global economy. And we invest public and private, you know, gross capital, uh, gross fixed capital formation is on the order of $25 trillion a year. So it's not impossible to think of an extra $4 trillion a year going into building hospitals in Africa and building renewable energy systems globally and so on and so forth. But what it requires all of us to do is to better understand what the state should be doing and what the private market should be doing. And I think that division of responsibility would help clarify and actually would make us better investors in the capital markets. And that the inner investor in me comes out when you mention you know, numbers like three to four trillion dollars, because those represent investable opportunities. Absolutely. If the government's put in place the right policies, the right incentives, and, and companies can see these as expanding addressable markets and you know, the, and we will allocate capital if we can see an investable opportunity and, and that's something i always have to remind our clients and you know, people we talk to that even if you want to put a sustainable and impact or even if you have to put an esg label on it or esg as an input first and foremost we are investors and we can't lose sight of of that, you know, do we have to do that job well? And you know, being, for example, green is not a sufficient condition right. to being a good investor. And in fact, if the business model is bad, we will do our clients no service whatsoever if we lose them money. Absolutely, it is such a, an important point. You know, I, I often like to say that um, finance and business is not immoral; it's amoral. It just responds to the conditions and to where opportunities are and where risks are. And I see this at Jefferies. You know, we have, I think, the best energy investment banking business on the street. And my colleagues there are so interested, so focused on what 10 years ago would seem like the greenest of green agendas because they're seeing the opportunity shift. They're seeing more investment in renewables. They're seeing the fact that climate finance, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, has tripled in the last 10 years. They're seeing the opportunities present themselves from carbon capture. They're seeing the opportunities from all these other types of energy transition plays. And that's not because they are, you know, or, 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 or energy investment bankers are good or bad people. That's just where the opportunities are. That's just how the world is shifting. And so I think if we can get back, you know, one of the things, Andrew, you like to say a lot, which I have copied from you, sometimes I give you attribution, sometimes I don't, but uh, is that we want to bring the investment back 
in sustainable investing. I think it's such a brilliant point. And I think that you're going to help us get there in the industry because we have to realize ESG and sustainable finance, all this is towards an end. And that end is maximizing returns for a period for a certain amount of risk and operating within a broader economic system that has the state and that has rules that emanate from them. We could talk for hours. We have in the past. Uh, but before we wrap up, um, I have a little section called Bull and Bear you know, to remind us that we are traditional investors as well. So what what in the world are you most optimistic about and yeah, what are you pessimistic about? You can just focus on markets. You don't have to talk about the SDGs or sustainable. Just I'm most optimistic right now about the growing focus on negative emissions technologies from both the private sector and the state. The US yesterday, Department of Energy announced a $3.5 billion investment program in four direct air capture facilities in the US, regional hubs for direct air capture, which we all hope will bring down the cost of direct air capture from $800, $900 per ton to $100 per ton over the next 10 years. When the state gets involved in things like this, we've seen it with solar, we've seen it with wind, we've seen it with EVs, you can dramatically bring down cost curves. And let's all remember that for us to solve climate, it will require that. It will require because we need to eventually take emissions that we've already put out into the atmosphere. We're going to have to put that back into the ground. And so I'm optimistic about what I'm seeing in the CDR space, the carbon dioxide removal space uh, globally. I'm most cautious about the pace of the energy transition over the next three years, because I think for poor, because of poor management of phase down of coal in certain spaces, of the phase out of nuclear in certain parts of the world, we are going to end up in the short term leaning into fossil fuels as we are right now. And what I'm nervous about, Andrew, is that that takes away some of the excitement and focus and progress that we've made in decarbonization. And so I'm most worried about what the implications of the next couple of years sort of doubling down on fossil fuels to get through this energy crisis will mean for long term transition prospects. I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, than you on that, because I think we will see an increase in brown investment, but also we'll have it in green investment at the same time. That won't be good for the you know, CO2 in the atmosphere in the short term, right. but I think the economics will kick in. You know, renewables are increasingly, because of the cost of That's oil, right. gas, are going to be the, the, the logical choice. So hopefully governments will have some logic in the incentives that they put in the system. But Annika, thanks very much for a fascinating discussion. Thank you for your time. If you'd like to learn more about investment opportunities at Joe Hambro, please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Just type in J.O. Hambro into your favorite search engine. I'm Andrew Parry. This is Organizing the Future. Thank you for listening. <laughs>